Christine. And I'm Alan. And we're two pastors with PhDs needing an outlet for all that knowledge rolling around in our heads. So we put our heads together and came up with this podcast. Each week we will discuss a scripture passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm going to interview Alan about his biblical knowledge. And I'm going to interview Christy about her amazing knowledge of the Reformation. And then we're going to talk together about the implications for today. Our hope is that between the two of us, we'll come up with some information that will help you with your sermon planning each week. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody, and welcome. It's great to have you with us today. Today we have a doozy. We have that parable of the ten bridesmaids. It is from Matthew chapter 25, verses... What is the? What are the verses? I'm One through sorry. 13. One through 13. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we are... This one is a hard one for, I think, all of us to preach. So let's get started with, with Alan and find out um, some of his impressions about this. Well, I think the place to start with is to is to always locate a passage in the context of the book as a whole, definitely. And, um, you know, in the context of Matthew, you know, Matthew chapter, so we've had, we've had this long section where you have the, the sort of Jesus is arguing back and forth with different Jewish religious leaders, and we went through that. Chapter 24 is Jesus' discourse on the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. And, and so then chapter 25 seems to follow that lead, uh, and, and the parables in chapter 25 seem to address or seem to want to address the parousia, and, and, but they also, have, they also resonate with other ideas found in Matthew's gospel, like the need for watchfulness. That's something that's a theme in Matthew's gospel. Um, the contrast between saying and doing, which we've seen before, and I think it's seen here in the in the practice of crying out, Lord, Lord, but not doing God's will. And then also the theme of wisdom versus foolishness. That's come up several times. So I, I think, I mean, I think this is very well situated in Matthew's gospel. Unfortunately, it's, it's hard to know what to do with it. <laughs> you know, this is only seen in Matthew's gospel. Is right. that significant in some way? Well, um, you know, uh, typically um, form critics would, would try to figure out, you know, is this from Matthew's source? Is this, is this re- reflecting, you know, simply Matthew's unique, some, some, some of Matthew's unique dominical traditions? Uh, or is this, is this um, um, you know, something that Matthew has, has composed? And so that's, that's a challenge, really. Uh, now, it's interesting because this parable in Matthew 25 is only found in Matthew. And the last parable in Matthew 25, the, the, the story of the judgment of the sheep and goats, is only found in Matthew. But the parable of the talents has a, has a parallel in Luke. So it's kind of interesting that, that Matthew, you've got some unique parables in Matthew sandwiched in with you know, one that's, one that's uh, shared. Um, I think for me, the more important question has to do with how we read this particular parable. Right. And I, I think it's interesting because when I went, just, I like to look online, just kind of say how people are reading this and how many places I found everyone's reading this wrong. Here's the true way to read this. And so I think that's maybe really a problem um, yeah. <laughs> with that kind of certainty, because I think part of um, coming to this is 
that it allows a person to enter it in, right. in, in many spaces. But right. I do think there are some clues that, um, uh, and how maybe to approach it anyway. Well, and, uh, you know, one of the basic things about parables is that, you know, uh, uh, it's funny because the, the German New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias um, was, well, was famous back in the late 20th century for having emphasized that a parable teaches one point, one and only point. Uh, and this, of course, was to counter the excessive allegorism that had that had grown up in the church. Well, the reality is that parables have can have meaning on multiple levels, not, and and not just you know what what is the what is the meaning of this parable in the context of Jesus' ministry versus the context of Matthew's community versus our context today, but but there are there do seem to be some some. Um, innuendos, you know, in in some of Jesus' parables, and so there there are different layers of meaning that that can be found, um, uh, and you know, frankly, uh, uh, some parables do seem to have an allegorical twist to them. Um, I, I, I think I th- the question is, is this allegory? Right, right, <laughs> and you know, the, the fact of the matter is that if it is allegory, then that then then the parable is a metaphor. At least it's it's at least a metaphor, or if perhaps an allegory for the return of Christ, and and there are some images that seem to suggest that the central feature of the parable concerns a wedding feast, and there are some um, reflections in the Hebrew Bible of that kind of a notion regarding the coming of the kingdom of God, uh, and of course the moral of the parable at the conclusion in chapter in verse thirteen is keep awake therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour which seems in Ma- in Matthew that kind of language seems to point toward the parousia or the coming of the Son of Man. Um, so uh, there are some some things that seem to point in that direction. My problem is where you wind up. If you, it, 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 to me, almost it's almost like it, this may sound like a contradiction in terms, but some people want to take want to read this parable literally as an allegory, yeah. <laughs> and they take it they take it kind of almost too seriously as an allegory, and they want to stick to that, and so that's 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 my problem. Uh, I, I, I because I guess to me the biggest problem I have with that reading is that there's somewhat of a di- disconnect in the details. If you really pay careful attention to the details of the parable, there's, you know, it doesn't quite line up, in my opinion. So, you know, first of all, you know, the moral of the story is keep awake. Yeah. <laughs> well, all of the bridesmaids <laughs> all fall asleep. Fall asleep. <laughs> yes. All of them fall yes, asleep. Yes, yes, yes. Which I think ought to ought to raise a red flag for us. Hey, something's going on here. <laughs> Um, And again, you know, we've seen before, you know, Jesus was the one who said, if you call someone a fool, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're just as guilty as if you wanted to kill them. And, and the same Greek word is used here to describe these bridesmaids as foolish. So again, it's like, wait, wait, what, you know, and then finally, I guess in my mind, well, not finally, but another thing is that for me, it's hard for me to reconcile that Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew's gospel, Matthew five forty two, give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. But in this parable, the wise bridesmaids are implicitly commended for refusing the request share. to share their oil. <laughs> 
And, and then, of course, you know, they tell the wise bridesmaids, the wise bridesmaids, right? They tell the foolish ones to go out go, at midnight buy and it. buy some oil. Yeah. Wait a minute. Who's wise and who's foolish? I mean, where are they going to? Where's anybody going to buy oil at midnight? That's ridiculous. Right. It's almost funny. I mean, I think we come at this always is so serious, but mm-hmm. I think, I mean, would Matthew's listeners have seen this as, as, as comicals, perhaps? I, I think they would have been more open to the irony of the parable. I th- obviously, with, with words like um, uh, more, which, you know, is, is, is the word for fool in, you know, in, in the vocative form in Matthew chapter 5. Um, it's a different, it's a different, obviously it's a different form of it in this passage, but it's the same word, and, and Greek speakers would have caught up, caught on to that. And so, you know, I think, and, and, yeah, and I think, I think they would also caught on to, wait a minute, who's wise and who's foolish? <laughs> Here, you know, because the wise ones say go out at midnight and buy oil. You know, it's kind of a comedy of errors, right? Well, <laughs> it is a bit, and I think that's. I think those are the clues that really point us in the direction that maybe we should look at this in an ironical way. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the final straw in in not reading this as a straightforward, straight up allegory about the return of Christ is that the bridegroom shuts the door. And, and when the foolish bridesmaid, bridesmaids return, they refused entry because he says to them, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Now, again, that has some, has some echoes in Matthew's gospel as well. But, you know, before the bridegroom arrived, he didn't know any of them. True. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> um, but I think more importantly, even in Matthew's gospel, we find stories of Jesus opening doors that had been long shut. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he, he heals a leper. He heals the servant of a Roman centurion. You know, he, he, um, he restores a, 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 a sort of an infamous demoniac to his right mind. Uh, he heals a paralyzed man. You know, he eats with a tax collector. And we saw in one of our earlier passages that he, you know, he seems to commend the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Um, he heals a woman considered unclean because of her ailment. Um, he heals a man whose hand was crippled. Uh, and he heals the daughter of a Gentile woman in foreign territory and then proceeds to go along and heal a bunch of people who, um, you know, probably were foreigners. So, again, I, you know, I think, you know, we see in Matthew's gospel, and this is consistent, I think, with, with the Jesus we see in the rest of the gospels, that Jesus isn't about shutting doors. He's about bursting through barriers and opening doors that have been long shut. And, and you know, Matthew in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, in connection with the, the, the one lost sheep and the 99, it's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. So it's hard for me to reconcile all of that with the image of the bridegroom shutting the door. Yeah, exactly. It seems to be a much more exclusive idea if you take it literally as an allegory for the return of Christ. So, I mean, all of that, just to me, it adds up to, you know, it's hard for me to read it that way. So why don't you give us a hint on then how you would understand it? Well, first of all, I think we have to understand that um, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew seems to be 
concerned for some reason about the separation of the good from the bad, even within the kingdom of heaven, which is a concept that doesn't make a lot of sense to me biblically, <laughs> that, there are, that there are weeds and wheat in the kingdom of God, and you're going to sort out the, the, the wheat the weeds from the wheat. Well, who, who's going to be a weed in the kingdom of God? I mean, you know. Um, so Matthew has this, has this concern. And I, and I guess the best sense I can make out of it is that this must come from, you know, the situation of the conflict with the synagogue. Um, um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but it does make, it does jive, I think, fairly well with, uh, you know, a, a thought process that was very well established in the Jewish minds of the day, which is ap- apocalyptic. Now, here, here's the big question. Was Jesus an apocalyptist? You know, um, yes and no. You know, Jesus did obviously point to a fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven at some point in the future. Um, but there's a lot more to apocalyptic than that. Um, you know, we we're most familiar with the Book of Revelation, but there are there are numbers uh, numbers of Jewish apocalypses that are written in about the same time, and they all kind of have the same idea that um, it's it's sort of you know the Jewish people have been traumatized at the hands of their Greek and Roman overlords, and so the main idea is that at the end of time, God is going to vindicate the faithful by taking revenge on their oppressors and destroying them violently. Either God will destroy them violently, or the faithful will go marching into battle and destroy all these oppressors violently. Um, And again, that seems to be a way of thought that has influenced some of the New Testament writers. I have a hard time ascribing it to Jesus. I really do. so I, I really, you know, and again, as I was thinking about it this morning, again, I was thinking, you know, Matthew's perspective, it seems a little bit like the imprecatory Psalms, you know, where the psalmist called down curses, you know, on their enemies and asked God to, to fulfill all these curses. Um, so that's one factor, is that I think some of this, some of this thinking originates in the apocalyptic mindset that was prevalent in the Jewish world of the time. But the other thing I think is just to compare what do we know about Jesus, even in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's where I go back to all these episodes that Matthew himself reports, you know, of Jesus opening doors that were shut, not shutting doors in the face of people, and especially not shutting doors in the face of people who are attracted to the church, you know, who are attracted to the kingdom. You know, it's hard for me to imagine Jesus stopping someone who wants to enter the kingdom. Um, Now, now, uh, in Matthew's worldview and in Matthew's mindset, I think he could, I think Matthew might envision Jewish people, Jewish leaders, maybe Jewish religious leaders thinking they have a claim to the kingdom and those are the, those are the weeds that are sorted out or something mm-hmm. like that. But again, that doesn't really resonate with me from Jesus' ministry. I, I think, you know, in the context of Jesus' ministry, uh, the only way that to read this parable that makes any sense to me is to see it as ironical in that it illustrates, it tells us what the kingdom of heaven is like by contrasting how differently the kingdom is from the way the world works. So this is a story about the way the world works. Yeah, you know, yeah, I see that. If, mm-hmm. if you're not prepared and you're late, you get you get excluded. You know, n- no one will be seated after 
a certain time, right? Right. Yeah, right, right, right. But that's not the way, you know, and so the world shuts, the world in which we live shuts doors, but the kingdom, it seems, in the kingdom of heaven, it seems to me that doors are open. And so I think, again, the reading of the parable that makes most sense to me is to see it as ironical, um, that, that Jesus is illustrating the kingdom by telling a story about the opposite of what the kingdom is like. And I, I do think, I do think the early readers of the gospel would have caught on to that. They would have said, wait, this is, this." it's kind of like the guy who was thrown out of the wedding feast in the earlier parable. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. like, wait, what? This is, what's wrong? This is not, this is not right. This isn't the God we know. This isn't the Jesus we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think everyone will be very curious as to how the reformers looked at this parable. I'm dying of curiosity (laughs) myself. We'll do that when we come back. Thank you. We're back, friends, and uh, I'm going to take a turn uh, asking Christy about the... uh, uh, reformers, and so just let's just start with that. For uh, Christy, how did the reformers read this parable? Yeah, I think I think this might surprise a lot of people, but but before we kind of get into Luther and Calvin, um, there's not actually a ton that they have done with these parables. Like others, they don't spend as much time with the parables as they do with some of the other teachings of of Jesus. Um, But there are pieces on it, and I found um, a sermon and a commentary, so I will refer to those. But Let's let's go back to the medieval period that preceded it because okay. the, the medieval thinkers really this was all allegory. Sure. So that tradition of allegory um, was was very central to their understanding. Well, yeah, the only this. way you could really get at the deep heart of Scripture was through allegorical absolutely, interpretation. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So that has come to impact how they're going to start to move into it. But Luther, true to Luther, <laughs> will take his own um, his own direction. And um, for, um, for Luther, and I actually Calvin probably as well, the the virgins are Christians. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're not Christian, you're not included in that, right. that group. Right. Um, and, and as Luther says, the wise ones are the good Christians and the, and the foolish ones are the phony Christians. So he's got them divided that way. Um, and in that sense, the oil in Luther's view is an allegory for faith. Mm. And ah, so, yeah, they were foolish because they didn't have faith. Exactly. They were foolish because they didn't have faith. Mm. The lamps are the outward service towards the neighbor. You know, we're going to carry these lamps and light their path. <laughs> uh, so he's got this in an allegory, but it's kind of a it's kind of a new take on it with this mm-hmm. whole faith concept in there. Um, and uh, he, he moves on through this um, again, claiming that. Those who are foolish, they they have they give lip service to being Christian, but yet they haven't really done. They haven't really followed into their mm. faith. Mm. But he wants to be very careful, true to Luther, that you don't think you get here by works. That mm-hmm. this is a response to faith that you're acting in, and that that's one of the roles of someone who is truly a Christian is that they're going to respond in faith. They're going to be prepared. They're going to have their oil. Was. <laughs> I don't know if this is I don't know if this is off the topic, but I'm, I mean the the thought comes to mind and the question comes to mind. 
Was this concept of true and false Christians something that the Reformers found in the medieval tradition, or was it something that started with the Reformers? Uh, well, I think this would have been part of the medieval tradition as well. I don't think this was anything new, but it was particularly highlighted to them who they were. I mean, who the um, uh, who 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 were not who were the foolish ones. In fact, he's very in this sermon, true to Luther, very harsh. I mean, it's the Papists, it's the Turks, and and he includes the Jews in here as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting. Those that have heard about. God, Jesus, yeah, yeah, and Jesus, right. But they uh, don't have true faith in his in his in his understanding of true faith, right? I think you would see particularly as you, as as the church, um, as the church begins to, in the Middle Ages, becomes to kind of identify itself. If we, you know, once the Rome falls and then we start to get this kind of bureaucracy building up, that's when they're starting this process of mm. identifying. You know, true Christians from false Christians, mm. i.e., that's when we see the rise of the Inquisition, right? Mm-hmm. True Christians. Oh, yeah, yeah right, right. So that's definitely... Because you have to root out heresy absolutely. or you have to identify witches and, mm-hmm. and burn right. them and all that kind of and thing. And all yeah. the tribunals, all the church tribunals right. that are right. trying people. Wow. So that's definitely a part of that wow. world. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think another piece that Luther that I want to put, put in here that is interesting is he also uses this to emphasize this priesthood of all believers. In other words, that all the virgins will have the opportunity to come to Christ. There's no intercessor. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that seems way out there for Whoa, us. Whoa, I don't know where he, where he, how he put that in there. <laughs> I, I don't either, but there it is. Maybe it was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at the moment. It could, it, it could, I know, it could be. But I am intrigued by um, how Luther's worldview begins to impact really everything he does Mm -hmm. um and if there's nothing else i think we can learn from luther too is you know maybe we need to check our own our own reading into the text and because i think nobody would have expected that from luther that's strange yeah it's like wait what (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly yeah what what surprised me and i'll go into calvin in a minute but i was kind of thought that maybe they would make something about um, the feminine world. I mentioned this to Alan before we started, and no, they they put themselves as as men into the shoes of the sure. virgins. There's no there's no gender <laughs> probably thing here. quite probably quite easily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they're like you know. Oh, I could. I thought maybe they'd have an issue with the whole idea that they could um, be the bride of Christ. And no, that mm. doesn't that does not come into play. I think mm. some modern readers might assume that it did and. For them, there is this is not about gender yeah. at all in any way, yeah. shape, or form, um, and, and they don't try to masculine uh, make it masculine. They don't try to keep it feminine. It's just not a gender thing. I see. And uh-huh. I do think that's significant because I think um, I think particularly feminist theologians want to to assume that this was a big gendered thing and a way to push uh, kind of ma- masculine ideas, and that just isn't where they were. This mm-hmm. was for men and women. This was a mm-hmm. um, this wasn't about about gender. Sure, but I don't really, and I don't really see it in the original parable either. I don't see that as being a primary focus of the right. parable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to move on to Calvin because okay. Calvin is really interesting, and I think we expect Calvin to come into this with some idea of predestination. And of course, that, this seems to be ready made for that. No, huh. he does not. 
Good for him. And <laughs> what I love about this is it reminds me, and I hope it reminds others, that while that has been heralded as Calvin's main teaching, this is one of those examples that just really was not. This is this was people after Calvin that pushed this agenda mm -hmm. onto him. Right. And in fact, he says this parable is about perseverance. This is not about allegory. Get rid of it. The oil doesn't matter. The, <laughs> the, the number of verses doesn't matter. This is about perseverance. This is about being watchful. And uh -huh. this is about being hopeful in your watchfulness. That's interesting because mm -hmm. he, he sort of, in that reading, he kind of anticipates by about two or 300 years the, the New Testament scholarship that came about in the late 19th and early 20th yeah. century that, again, as I mentioned, that parables are not to be allegorized, but to be read as teaching a main exactly. point. Exactly. And we talked earlier that Calvin does use allegory a little. We always call it kind of a light allegory or, uh, and, 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 but it's, his allegory works if he saw that this had some kind of historical, like if he's reading Old Testament, pro Old Testament prophecy and he sees some type of historical reality that comes back from, comes after it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, but yeah. otherwise he really, really urges people to stay away from allegory and stop reading into this what's not there. He said, this is about perseverance. This is about being watchful. You've been called as Christians. This is about being watchful in that call and, and not about getting weary. And I, I kept thinking about the Afri African-American spiritual, keep your lamps, mm -hmm. keep your lamps trimmed and burning. Um, children don't get weary. Mm. It's the second verse. Mm -hmm. Children don't get worried till your work is done. And I mm. thought, I think that encapsulates what, what Calvin saw mm. in this parable. Mm. Mm. That's is, pretty good, which is actually. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. yeah it's very cool. <laughs> so I was pleasantly surprised to read his commentary um, on this, on the scripture, actually. Well, and, and, you know, that, that, that notion of watchfulness is something that you find in, in Matthew's gospel, in, you know, Jesus affirming this. Um, and so the idea of uh, uh, watchfulness as opposed to sleeping, watchfulness as, a, and in other places in the New Testament, it's watchful, watchfulness as opposed to being drunken, you know, uh, but watchfulness and, and readiness and um, re it's about remaining faithful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So perseverance is a good framework to put on it, I think. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, yeah, it was. It had his his interpretation had a very uplifting feel about it. It didn't, it didn't spend so much time focusing on those who weren't prepared. It was more about just a reminder to all those in faith that you don't want to not be prepared. You're going to miss the party. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're going to miss the party mm -hmm. if you're not if you're not prepared. Mm. And I, I, I was, as I said, I was surprised. It's a fairly refreshing take. It on was it, a refreshing yeah. take. It really <laughs> was, and I was, I was quite pleased. I was quite pleased to read it, actually. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Way to go, Calvin. Yeah, way to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, was there any was there any awareness among the reformers of some of the the red flags that I mentioned about the par the details of the parable not not sort of making sense? No. No, no, they didn't. No, they didn't that go would that be far. that would yeah. be a more modern exegesis, I yeah, think, than that yeah, they were yeah. there at at that point into that kind of uh, awareness. Um, so, um, I guess obviously for for Luther, you draw the boundary between who's in and who's out, based on true Christian faith. Yeah. Who defines true Christian faith? <laughs> Right. Well, those who understand that they're following, um, they're following the will of God as, and in accordance with Scripture, okay. um, versus those who are following basically 
what's not scriptural and yeah. i.e. all those groups that he used to So the papist the, the, the papist the Turks, the, the Turks. Uh, yeah and uh, and and uh, sorry I'm forgetting the third one now. He even put the Jews in here. The Jews, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he right. even put the Jews in right. here. Right. Hmm. Now, you know, did the reformers have this idea, you know, that we that I mentioned about um um, that the mission of the church is to leave the 99 and seek out the one who went astray, or were they more concerned to create sort of a church of the called and, and they, and not so much reach out to the, to the nine, to the one who went astray? I think that's a good question. I think you, I think it evolves. Um, so if we look at Luther, for example, we're going to see Luther believing that everybody, of course, you're coming. You're coming in a world of Christendom, right? Where mm-hmm. basically everyone is, is Christian, a Christian right? because you are exactly. a, a member of this society. Right. right? Maybe <laughs> you're one of the false Christians, but you're right. still a, a Christian. Um, and so for for Luther, it was yes, but their understanding of what that means is so lacking. If we can educate them, if they can read for themselves, if they can, mm. if they can understand the Bible, yes, they are called. Um, they are called part of this body. But the problem is, of course, as you go on with Luther's thought, is that has, leads to all kinds of wild heresies and misinterpretations, and those then become kind of false Christians. They're led astray. So it's this interesting, it's kind of developmental, I think, with, with him. Um, yeah, you mentioned before that he kind of becomes disillusioned about that whole notion that all you have to do is give them the scriptures in, the, in a language they can read. Right. Yeah, so there needs to be more guidance in in that, and um, I think I think there's I think for Luther there's always hope. I mean, I do think Luther's always hopeful that people will come back to the true faith, but some of them are so hard headed that they mm-hmm. they just they 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 can't or they yeah. won't. Yeah. Um, you know, and Calvin, of course, we go with Calvin and we look at his theology and we see this um, uh, we we see his predestination and then, you know, ultimately double predestination and, um, at the end. And I, I I don't think Calvin really stops hoping that people will all can all be in this saved group. But I think realistically, he's like, if I have, if people are chosen, there's someone that's not chosen. I think for Mm -hmm. him, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of, of logic there. Um, so kind of a, uh, kind of an interesting question. I don't think I don't think they dwell on it as much as the modern thinker dwells sure. on it. And sure. I think that's the big difference is when you have the kind of skepticism that you have in the modern era, um, then that really leads to reading Calvin and frankly Luther in this kind of negative terminology, which I really don't think was their message. Yeah. Well it, it does seem it does seem to make sense that they weren't living in a in a space in which um, a church that excludes some was perceived as something um, offensive. You know, that was just that was just sort of. It seems like that was just kind of taken for granted. It wasn't. It, that wasn't a that wasn't a problem. It seems like in that day and time that the church might exclude some, but today it seems like that's a much bigger problem for us. I think it is a bigger problem for us. Yeah, uh, yeah, I yeah. do. 
I do. And I, I think that they believe that, you know, the charity and our outreach and all these things could hit all of these, all of these outlying groups, mm-hmm. potentially, mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly Geneva, right? I mean, no, right. Geneva had this amazing, no one was hungry in Geneva. Right. Um, uh, but that didn't mean everybody living there was ultimately saved. So. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, we'll pick up for this when we come back. Okay. Hey, we're back to talk about kind of some of the modern implications of this passage. And I, I think this last part we could talk about, you know, myth and reading the Bible, <laughs> maybe. But one of the ways this has been read um, by many groups is that it's an apocalyptic passage. And I thought we should maybe dig into that a little bit more. So, Alan, what do you think about that interpretation? Well, uh, you know, um, it's a lot of people read it that way. A lot of people read this parable as an allegory or at least or perhaps a metaphor for the end of the world and what's going to happen, you know, when Christ returns. Um, as I mentioned, you know, in my segment earlier that I, it's hard for me to, to, to go with that. And one of the problems I have with that is that um, in, from my reading of Jesus, the main influence on Jesus thought about God, about about the kingdom, about grace and mercy and love is the biblical prophets. And I'm talking about, you know, the, 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 the major prophets um, uh, and, the, and some of the minor prophets, the, you know, the ones who were the main voices of God's message, you know, and, and you know, it, it's almost uncanny how similar his message is to theirs. Um, now, what we have to understand is that in the me in 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 the in the time between the prophets and Jesus, you have a whole lot going on. You've got the exile in Babylon. You've got the people of Israel exposed to Zoroastrian religion in Babylon, where which posits, <laughs> oddly enough, two gods: a a, a good god and an evil mm-hmm. god who's equally right. co-powerful with the good God. And, you know, we see where that goes, right? Um, you've got a lot of this uh, apocalypticism. You've got a lot of this end times thinking that, that comes in to the Jewish mindset at that time. And in my opinion, you see it reflected in the New Testament, even in the Gospels. And I, I, in my opinion, I think apocalyptic thinking this whole idea of a god who's going to pour wrath on on the sea of unrepentant humanity and and you know wipe them out and and you know even the image of Christ washing his robes in the blood of the nations that's so high that it you know it's like it's it's reaching up to his thigh while he's riding on a horse you know this is an image of of extreme violence that that just doesn't ring true to the biblical prophets. That's not the language that they use. They use the language of restoration. You know, they'll beat their swords into uh, into plowshares and their yeah, spears yeah. into pruning hooks. Mm-hmm. And and nation will not make war against nation. They will all come streaming to the mountain of the Lord to know the Lord, and they will all know the Lord. You know, this is the vision of Isaiah right. and right. of Second Isaiah as well. And so. Um, and I, I, there's much more resonance, I think, between Jesus' teachings and um, 
at least as I understand Jesus' teachings. And um, that kind of uh, violent end-time scenario. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Matthew, uh, just like Paul and some of the other biblical, some of the other New Testament writers, they were men of their age. And I think, and they had, you know, apocalyptic thinking had been a tradition in Jewish in the Jewish world for several hundred years by the time they came on the scene. So I think it was something that was hard for them to avoid. But I, I just, I don't, I, I personally, it doesn't make much sense to, it, to think of God in, that, in those terms what, or to think of Jesus in those terms. I think it's kind of a dangerous, myself, I, I don't think that's the kind of message I want to preach to my people. I, can, I am seeing it, I think it, I think it encourages judgment of, ooh, I'm... I'm keeping vigilant. Obviously, someone else isn't. I can judge that by what they're doing and how mm-hmm. they're acting. I think the grace and the, the forgiveness is lost when you start in this period of saying, oh, well, who's in and who's out? And mm-hmm. I think we have to be really, really careful. Um, it, it, to me, once you start down the path of who's in and who's out, boy, you are, you are in for a whole mess of, a whole world of hurt. And a whole so world too. of problems. Well, your whole church is based on fear yes. instead of on yes. love. And yes. and I think that's a problem that we hear over and over and over. And mm-hmm. I think that's a problem with people that have left the church, actually. You know, and what 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 uh, the folks listening may not know is that I was, a, I was an ordained minister and a seminary professor in the Southern Baptist world. And, of course, there is a lot of that in that world. Um um, you know, I made, I, I like to say I was a reformed Christian wandering in a Baptist wasteland until I found my way to my Presbyterian home. That's the way I like to say it. But, um, um, you know, uh, th- there is a lot of that fear out there that goes along with that thinking. And, you know, the thing about the thing that I saw in that world was this parents just like quaking in their boots wringing their hands terrified over their eternal the eternal destiny of their children and and so in the baptist world for example which advocates believers baptism not infant baptism and even in throughout the history of baptist literature there's there's this polemic against the pedo baptists the people who baptize infants you know in Southern Baptist life, you find children making professions of faith, quote unquote, at age four, six, you know, and it really approaches essentially infant baptism. Mm-hmm. And it's because mm-hmm. the parents are freaked out about the fear that their children are going to wind up spending their eternal destiny in some mm-hmm. horrible scenario. Yep. And, and I, that's, what, that's the kind of thinking that apocalypticism I think generates and you know to me I go back to Moses in the cleft of the rock you know God is gonna (laughs) God is gonna destroy the children (laughs) of Israel I think it's a test for Moses myself Mm -hmm. you know to see whether Moses is more about his own ego or he's more really a servant of the people and and the, the so 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 Moses says now show me your glory and you know so God, he says, you can't see me face to face, but I'll, I'll let you see my backside. And what, you know, the backside of God is that Moses hears the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassion, passionate, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, you know, um, um, visiting the sins of the son of the fathers on the sons to the third and the fourth generation, but showing love to the thousandth generation. And, and that that phrase the lord the lord gracious and compassionate full of steadfast love and faithfulness 
that echoes throughout the Hebrew Bible over yeah. and over yeah. and over and over yeah, again. Absolutely, right. And, and to me, that's the essential revelation of who God is. It's a little bit like the New Testament statement, God is love. Right, and that's who Jesus comes into, right? This right. is God's son. I represent God. I, I right. am God here incarnate. And that's a much different and a much more welcoming God I, than the one that's full of the fear and judgment. I mean, it seems to me that the God of the Bible is the God of grace and mercy and love that I never agree. fails. I agree. The God of embrace, yeah. not the God of exclusion, to exactly. borrow, borrow from Miroslav Wolf's um, theological work on this. You know, I don't see God as being about shutting doors. I see God as being about breaking down doors to 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 um, draw um, people into the embrace of His love, mm-hmm. uh, who who might have been shut out, even by religious traditions. Exactly, which is you know one of the things I have loved about being Presbyterian. We have an open table. Mm-hmm. All are welcome at the table. Mm-hmm. We always talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ, even in the other traditions, which may or may not recognize us. Right. Um, which I also think is really, really wonderful. And, yeah. and it's so loving. And it's so, it's, it's such a freeing sense. Yeah. So I had, I had a story. Um, when I left the Southern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, where I taught, um, I went to an American Baptist church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is considered to be the Berkeley of the Midwest. <laughs> Very progressive right, place. Right. And um, so uh, the church I served had considered uh, an openly gay woman as their pastor. And about half the congregation just said, we're not comfortable having an openly gay person as our pastor. This was 20 years ago. And I was, you know, I was like, well, you know, at least they didn't say, no, this is an abomination. You know, they were, because mm-hmm. that was, that was the language. That was a lot of the rhetoric that's being thrown around in that world in those days. Mm-hmm. So I felt pretty good about this congregation that was, had enough, um, uh, you know, sense of themselves to say, we just aren't comfortable at this point mm-hmm. with that. Well, we did have an openly gay organist on our staff and, um, we were talking about communion not long after I came to be the pastor there and um, whether it should be open to all. And he was, a, he was from the Episcopalian tradition, and he asked the best question. He said, is it literally the body and blood of Christ or not? And I said, no. <laughs> and so he said, then what's the big deal, you know? <laughs> and so I've always practiced open communion and basically since that time. And even, even as a Presbyterian, before it was actually officially kosher by the director of worship, because when I first started, the director of worship spelled it out, you know, that, that only baptized believers mm-hmm. were, to, were to participate in communion. That just didn't fit my understanding of, of the, the supper. It's, it's, it's a, I saw it as an invitation to invite people invitation. to trust in Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's another sort of personal anecdote here, but, you know, I, I spent all those years in the Southern Baptist world where if you preach, and as a, even as a seminary professor, as a, I, I would preach, you know, you're supposed to take whatever your sermon is on 
and turn it into evangelistic invitation at the end of the service. Well, of course you are. <laughs> oh, I hated that. I hated that with a passion. But one of the things I, I love to tell people is I never go tired of inviting people to the table. Yeah. Never go tired of that. And, and I will, I, if, if, you know, if, if our church decided to have communion every Sunday, I would be thrilled to invite people to the table every Sunday because I'm, to me, I'm inviting people to have faith in Jesus, to renew their faith in Jesus, to be strengthened in their faith in Jesus, you know? <laughs> so. Right. Well, that was, Calvin actually wanted to have it every, every yeah, Sunday, you yeah, know? Um, yeah. But I, I yeah. may have gotten off on some rabbits there. I'm no, sorry. no, it's all very, very good. And I think we've hit, I'm, I'm hoping folks are feeling comfortable now and thinking about as they hear that rhetoric that's going on as to, as to why maybe that direction is not going to be helpful for the ministry and to maybe focus a little bit more on this um, a little bit differently. You know, one of the things I have learned over the course, uh, I mean, I, I started in 1979 as a Bible major you know, and then later became a Bible and Greek major in college. One of the things I've learned over the years is to trust sort of my instincts, my gut feeling. If something about a passage doesn't seem to ring true or doesn't seem to just, just seems off. So we, we started by right. talking about yeah, how people, people read this passage and they feel uncomfortable. Well, so I, I have learned over the years to trust that uncomfortable feeling as a, as a pointer. Hey, I need to pay some more careful attention to this. There's something else going on mm -hmm. here besides what's just on the surface. I agree. Or, or the, the traditional way that I've understood this passage. And I found it helpful. Of course, Alan, Alan doesn't have to translate the Greek. He just reads it. But for those <laughs> of us that have to translate it, I find it helpful to translate it. It makes a big difference. So get your Greek books out. <laughs> um, <laughs> And go translate it yourself because that's also helpful in, in getting to the meaning. I can't improve on that, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's our podcast for today. We'd like to thank Mandy Peterson for our graphic design. And Sarah Renner for her beautiful music. If you heard something that was helpful to you in your ministry, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you listen in. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.